Hi, I'm Steve Cusisto. Hi, I'm Diane Weiner, and we're with the Burton Blight Institute at Syracuse University. You're listening to ADA Live. Yo. Hi, let's roll. Let's go. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to episode 63 of ADA Live. Hi, everybody. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm the director at Southeast ADA Center, and I'm your host for today. Today, we're going to be talking about interdisciplinary outreach in the post-secondary environment, and we're going to focus on a new initiative at Burton Blatt Institute the Office of Interdisciplinary Programs and Outreach. Before we begin, as a reminder, ADA Live listening audience, if you have questions, you can submit them uh, anytime through our website, adalive.org. The Burton Blatt Institute, housed at Syracuse University's College of Law, recently announced that two leading disability study scholars have joined the Institute. They're charged with launching a new initiative known as the Interdisciplinary Programs and Outreach. They're Steve Cusisto, university professor at Syracuse, and Diane Weiner, who's currently the director of the Disability Cultural Center at Syracuse University. Listeners, you might remember Steve. He's no stranger to ADA Live. He was our guest last spring talking about his great new book, Have Dog Will Travel. In their new positions, Diane will join BBI as a research professor and associate director of the Office of Interdisciplinary Programs and Outreach. Steve, who's a university professor, will serve as the director of the initiative. So it's my pleasure now to introduce today's guests, Steve Cusisto and Diane Weiner. Hi, Steve and Diane. Welcome to the show. We're delighted to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Barry. So... I'm interested if you could tell us a little bit about this initiative and how it complements the, the mission of, of Burton Blatt Institute. I'm going to defer to Diane for a minute and then I will uh, sweep in with a few following remarks. I think one of the exciting things about this initiative, Barry and everyone, is that we have the opportunity to think critically across an array of different locations in terms of disability justice, disability cultures, identities, and the concept of disability as one that moves through every arena of life, um, and something about which one might experience a sense of pride and not have shame or the requirement for overcoming or triumph, but rather ways that we might think about disability in relation to wellness, adaptive and inclusive athletics, employment, our disabled vets population, people returning um, from multiple environments after being in the service specifically, disability arts and culture, uh, issues of recruitment and retention of disabled students, and certainly things that connect with disability, cultures, faith, and secularism, certainly um, also the, the music and poesis broadly construed. So pretty much anything you can think of, uh, in information and communication, technology, all kinds of different aspects of life in which always necessarily disability interfaces and unfolds. Those are some of my thoughts about the importance of the initiative and how we're going to collaborate with people among our students, faculty, staff, alumni, 
community members, et cetera. This is Steve here. You know, it's interesting. Disability is really everywhere once you learn to look for it. So we think about disability, many of us uh, who have been in the field of disability advocacy and disability rights, we tend to think of disability as being co-determinate with the Americans with Disabilities Act and with, you know, juridical thinking. But it's also the case that disability is in the arts. Uh, Franz Liszt and uh, Frederick Chopin had disabilities. We know Beethoven did. Uh, disability enters into uh, American and world literature in all kinds of complex and interesting ways. Disability is a form of thinking. That is to say, we use the fancy word in higher ed, we use the word epistemology, a way of knowing, really. Disability is, in fact, as we now understand through great remarkable research being done and advocacy being done by people uh, who are neurodiverse, that uh, disability and imagination function uh, according to talents revealed by disabilities. So we're in a really remarkable moment where uh, one can actually enter into any area of human inquiry and find a disability-focused um, reflection or dynamic. And that's partly what we want to be focusing on, is opening the doors to dialogue, engagement, by scholars and students uh, here at Syracuse University and around the around the United States. I'm I'm, I'm wondering, putting all those things together, um, <clears throat> both Steve and Diane, we 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 know, and Diane had mentioned recruitment and retaining students with disabilities, and and we know that students with disabilities who enroll in college, very few of them actually complete a four-year program or get a a degree. How does your work then assist those students in com completing a college program? I think one of the things that's really important is supporting students without condescension and feeling empowered as contributors to the campus community and as contributors to the world uh, writ large. Because oftentimes, again, when we think about disability in a mainstream way, it's about uh, some people call it a pity party or something having to do with uh, trying to make make better uh, uh, or having a curative orientation. And in this case, it's really about encouraging people, as Steve alluded to just now, and talking about ways of knowing, uh, specifically disability-oriented ways of knowing. How do the students uh, get to get uh, connected in such a way that they understand that they are contributing to the campus, that they are not... Um, you know, an, an, an energy that is disrupting life, but in fact, uh, a necessary and central part of campus life. And so that we enhance the tapestry of diversity and divergence, and that the students understand that they're in the position to be leaders in moving the university forward in a way that's about inclusion and belonging, not just um, in some linguistic sense, but in a very practical way. So I think that uh, encouraging the faculty and the staff and leaders of the university to work in partnership with the students so the students have a sense of centeredness and primacy is very much a political project and a culture change project. And that's one way that I can answer among others that I would, that I would suggest right now. Yeah, and I would, this is Steve, I would jump in and add that one of the reasons that students with disabilities don't make it all the way through a four-year undergraduate uh, experience is has to do uh, with the very critical 
um, tension between studying, being a student, and uh, financial aid. Mm -hmm. That, in other words, for instance, I'll, I'll speak sort of in personal terms here. I'm blind. I went to college uh, at a liberal arts school where I was able to go to college for free. My father was a senior member of the administration. And that allowed me to take classes or not take classes, to drop a class if it was beyond my capacities, given the, you know, the time constraints and difficulties uh, having to do with blindness. I could take incompletes. I think I still hold the record for the number of incompletes. Uh, you know, I, I can't prove this, but it surely has to be true. Uh, so, you know, it took me um, five years to complete college rather than four and uh, and I came out with no, um, you know, no debt. Moreover, I didn't have to have a job mm -hmm. uh, as a secondary dynamic to getting an education. So one of the things that I'm interested in seeing to it that we um, achieve uh, is um, more undergraduate and graduate uh, fellowships and scholarships for students with disabilities who wish to attend Syracuse University. And that would be regardless of what it is they choose to study. So uh, if we can help take the burden off of uh, the financial um, struggle and free students with disabilities up just to study, then they're going to have, I think, a better outcome. Great. Thanks, Steve. I have a question. How, how does the Office of Interdisciplinary Program and Outreach how does this interface with the academic strategic plan of the university? The academic strategic plan of the university is invested in a strong interdisciplinary orientation. Uh, there is a, an emphasis on globalization and on the idea that students from all over the country and all over the world will find in Syracuse's iconoclastic uh, offerings and opportunities to have majors in an array of different um, interest areas and disciplinary foci and certainly professional skills development, the opportunity to really uh, broaden their understanding of what it means to live um, in an inclusive global society. So I feel that uh, this initiative interfaces precisely with the different perspectives on when someone graduates from Syracuse University, by the time they've graduated, how might they on the job market, for example, be understood as recognizable as having graduated from Syracuse University. And one of the ways that that individual who will have graduated from Syracuse University is identifiable, arguably, by the time all of this comes to fruition, will be that they understand the relevance and, and um, importance of disability as part of the ways that people understand um, the complexities of our current global society. So I think that in all the different uh, points of reference in the academic strategic plan, in terms of academic excellence specifically, that again, disability is not an afterthought or something you have to deal with or a requirement or that subject, oh, that again, but on the contrary is really a rich, engaging, and as Steve often talks about, an imaginative way of living in the world. Um, Neil Marcus famously said that disability is an ingenious way to live. And many people who are disabled find ways to manage in mainstream society out of requirement because the world wasn't built for us. Because of ableism, people find ways they have to manage as a way to cope. 
but that orientation is also advantageous. So rather than having it be that we have to do that because we don't have a choice because of discrimination, because of marginalization and oppression, rather that people might have this approach just because of creativity. So I think that that is part of the academic strategic plan is that orientation towards academic rigor in relation to um, creativity, interdisciplinarity, and inclusion. Those are some of the thoughts I have at least. Yeah, and I would add to that that sometimes people ask me, do you have a better term for disability? Mm -hmm. And my response to that is always, yes, citizen. Mm -hmm. I think that if we really imagine uh, the disabled uh, human being as a fully uh, functioning, fully fledged mm -hmm. uh, and fully included member of uh, society, then the word disability ceases to have any merit. Mm -hmm. It's an old word. It goes back to the 19th century. Um, the first person to use it widely was Karl Marx. He used it to you know, designate people who had been injured and were no longer therefore capable of working in factories. So the term actually from its very initial, you know, beginnings uh, has to do with uh, economic incapacity, uh, an embodied economic incapacity. And we keep playing around with this word because we're the inheritors of it. So we say things like, well, it, we're differently abled or, you know, um, yeah. you know, whatever. Right. And the fact of the matter is, if we just use the word citizen and we really mean it, that all citizens are equal, as Thomas Jefferson um, avowed, then in point of fact, um, that's one of the desired outcomes of a, an ambitious university curriculum that looks across disciplines, looks uh, across units of engagement, uh, and is at its core designed to make people better civic participants. And disability is going to be part of that at Syracuse because of this initiative. That's well said. Thank you, Steve. Um, speaking of those roles, and, and you mentioned citizen, and certainly another powerful role for people on any college campus is that of student. So, so in thinking of those roles, those student roles that, that those students with disabilities play, um, how, how do you see them as being part of, of, of this initiative? How, how do those how does your plan for research projects, for teaching, for collaboration, all the activities that surround this interdisciplinary program, what, what roles do, do those students play? Well, I'm going to defer to Diane in a second. This is Steve. Uh, but I would say that the Burton Blatt Institute uh, already has a strong commitment to um, hiring and involving students with disabilities in the research work that the program does. And so we have several uh, students with disabilities, both at the graduate and undergraduate level, uh, working on you know, important projects uh, through the Burton Blatt Institute. So from the very beginnings, uh, BBI, uh, you know, more than a decade ago, um, began with that principle in mind. Uh, so we seek to involve students in all kinds of scholarly activities and research activities. But uh, you know, as we've already alluded to, uh, one of our goals is to bring more students in and to do that through engaging with different units on the campus who may not even already know that they actually have an interest in disability. For instance, we have architects here who know that universal design is an important thing 
and that it's connected in some respects to the origins of disability thinking in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, but they may not know, right, that uh, working directly with students from other units at the university on imaginative ideas involving new ways to uh, engage with accessibility uh, and design are indeed possible. So that's one of the things we want to do is to be involving people who may have an interest but don't know the extent to which that interest might be translatable into really interesting work with students and, uh, and with uh, outside organizations that provide resources and funding for research. And now I'm going to pass my imaginary <laughs> baton to Diane, who is well positioned to answer some parts of this because she's been directing our amazing uh, Disability Cultural Center, which really does reach across the campus in all kinds of ways. Thank you very much. I, I think that one of the exciting things about this is thinking about the history of the university the history and ongoing outstanding work of the Burton Blight Institute and the fact that we have so many different disability rights groups that exist already but as Steve just noted there is simultaneously also this presence of energy where not everybody necessarily is oriented already toward thinking about disability as part of the work we're doing. So how do we connect the people who are already very invested and very awake about or woke as some of the students say, I guess I'm allowed to say that, woke, people who are woke about disability already and people who may not necessarily have that in mind when thinking about um, inclusive pedagogy, for example. So there are so many different illustrations of this. I mean, we have this outstanding collaborative design initiative and program in our Visual and Performing Arts College uh, VPA. And there are people who collaborate with students as end users uh, in, in a variety of projects that have to do with disability inclusion and universal design. And what would it mean to create coursework, for example, or pedagogical opportunities where the students who have been end user, you know, folks who have been part of those projects might help create new courses um, with each other. Maybe they'd be taught in different departments, including within VPA. You know, there are also people who do all kinds of work in the College of Education and in the School of Education, excuse me, uh, who are committed to inclusive education, obviously. And we have a long, long history of that at this university and in Syracuse. And so how do people create writing initiatives in the community in partnership with people who have a background, direct experience with disability, and how that might affect how courses are taught not just in terms of how the curriculum is designed, but the actual content. So there's a poetic seminar, and there's always going to be poetry that's available in multiple formats, but also that the poets who are selected as part of that curriculum might be student poets who are in the middle of creating a new journal, you know, on campus because they feel empowered to do so. You know, there, there are lots of examples we can give. I think that, um, we collaborate a lot now with you know, the Beyond Compliance Coordinating Committee, which is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, disability rights graduate student group in the country that was 17 years old this fall. Um, there, we have an undergraduate disability rights group called the Disability Student Union. There's a new, um, very cool, emergent autistic rights group called On the Spectrum, which was created by our students, working with alumni and staff as well who identify as on the spectrum, hence the name. And we also have people from the Disability Law Society, 
and many other student groups. Active Minds is a mental health rights organization. So between the Disability Student Union is the undergraduate realm here and all these other groups of specific commitments to certain kinds of disabilities, there are the general and the specific. I think we have tons of opportunity for collaboration with students at the center of the conversation. That's interesting. And there, there's just such a richness on the Syracuse University campus of, of groups, several of which you just mentioned. And it's, you know, a couple of observations. Number one is we, we, we certainly have a, a legacy at Syracuse, Burton Blatt, for instance, but, but even today, how we have carried that legacy forward and just the amazing work that's going on, on today. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention is Diane, you are the first woman I think I've ever met who would use woke and pedagogy together in the same sentence. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we here at Wiener Incorporated aim to please and delight, Barry. <laughs> Let, let's, let's shift gears for a second, uh, because obviously you and Steve, you, you, you both have a very comfortable relationship with each other. Uh, how did you two get together? How did you meet? It was the F train at midnight. No, that's not what happened. <laughs> What happened, Steve? <clears throat> well, when I came here in 2011 to direct the honors program, uh, Diane came at exactly the same time to direct the newly created uh, Disability Cultural Center. We are the first university to actually have a Disability Cultural Center. And she came on board and she reached out to me and said, let's get together. And so uh, we did. We met at the university's uh, Goldstein Faculty and Alumni Center, and uh, we had a, a lunch together, and we began uh, talking about disability culture, disability history, disability ideas, the arts, and, you know, pretty soon it was very clear that we were, um, we were basically siblings from a, another mother. <laughs> so, uh, and that has proven to be, uh, you know, the, that was the origins, really, of a, of a great friendship. And so uh, that was really the start right there, you know. Mm -hmm. I think it was kind of like uh, John Lennon said to uh, Paul McCartney, you want to join me band? You yes. know, it was pretty much that kind of thing. Uh, it was great. We can talk about our glottal stoppages together <laughs> and the Liverpoolian context in which we find ourselves. <laughs> I think what's interesting, too, is that one of our first um, meals, because it was there uh, and it was, a, it was a sharing of ideas and of food, it, it was, I think, pretty much immediately we started talking about this series that we created, which has existed ever since, uh, called Disabilities as Ways of Knowing, a series of creative writing conversations. And this was a collaboration across the different schools and colleges led by Steve and by me and our students, again, at the helm and in, in organizing much of this work. And the Disability Studies Program, the Disability Rights Clinic, the Disability Law and Policy Program, the Center in Human Policy, the Tayshov Center for Inclusive Higher Education, obviously the Burton Blatt Institute, and so many other examples of disability justice-oriented work, pedagogy, research, service, activism. We have um, just so many opportunities here. And so that first conversation, we talked about a lot of that. But we talked about writing. And we, we began to talk with each other. I was actually pretty intimidated because I thought, oh, my God, I'm meeting with Steve Cusisto, whose name I didn't know how to pronounce yet. But I thought 
this guy is amazing. And I really thought immediately, like, we're going to be very close friends and we're going to take up some cool opportunities to do weird things that are impactful and are connected with all kinds of other folks. So, you know, the art series that we created and the poetic series that we created, I think, um, is in many ways um, one of the grounds of this new initiative, the interdisciplinarity of it. And all of those programs are recorded and captioned and available currently on the Disability Cultural Center YouTube channel. Diane, you know, we're, we're familiar with, with Steve from previous episodes of ADA Live. We know that he is an accomplished author, but you've just published your own full-length poetry collection, uh, The Gollum Verses. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, thank you for asking about that. I, I, um, I guess the short answer to a really wa wonderfully weird uh, thought around this question is that I uh, had an encounter with this understanding of this Jewish mystical energy who is connected to the Kabbalah and connected to Jewish mysticism in a broad way. And this golem uh, came to chat with me, I'll say, um, energetically, um, and we began interacting um, in my imagination. And I wrote a poem in the aftermath of an experience, and then Steve I wrote another one, and Steve said, well, keep going. So some of this, uh, if there's anything good that was accomplished here, Steve is at least partly blameworthy, uh, because he encouraged me to keep going, and uh, I did, and I wound up writing um, over 100 poems, all connected to this character who's my interlocutor, my companion. Um, some people conjecture other symbolism here, but it's really just friendship as far as I'm concerned. And we go on these different adventures together um, that involve pterodactyls and roller coasters and carousels. You know, there are moments of joy and moments of solemn solemnity. And it's one of the weirdest things I've ever written, for sure. Not the weirdest thing I've ever written, but I think it isn't really about me at all, like most creative work. I think it's really about other people's experience of it. And once you write it and share it, it's for the world and people do with it what they will. And so it was published by Nine Mile Press um, in Lafayette, New York, and Bloomsday, uh, all hail James Joyce. James Joyce and Thomas Jefferson, neither of them necessarily perfect in their ways, of course, but both mentioned during our conversation with you today. <laughs> Thanks, Diane. Um, we need to stop for a minute for a break. Um, ADA Live listening audience, if you have questions for Diane and Steve about the Office of Interdisciplinary Programs and Outreach at the Burton Blatt Institute, or if you have a question about poetry, or about using woke and pedagogy in the same sentence, you can um, uh, you can you can ask that question or a question about any other ADA Live topic by submitting your question to adalive.org. So let's stop for a minute for a word from our sponsor, the Office of Interdisciplinary Programs and Outreach at the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University. The new Office of Interdisciplinary Programs and Outreach at the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University creates and advances intersectional educational programs, research and pedagogy, 
focused on disability justice, identities, cultures, and studies. The heart of this initiative are the interests and needs of the Syracuse University community, including students, faculty, staff, and alumni with disabilities, including the significant experiences and contributions of veterans. To learn more about the program, visit bbi.syr.edu slash projects. Okay, welcome back, everybody. We're, we're talking with Steve Cusisto and Diane Weiner about the newly launched Office of Interdisciplinary Programs and Outreach at Merton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University. So, Diane and Steve, considering your, your, your many aspirations for, um, for this new endeavor, what, what's, what, what are one of your best hopes or, or a key theme or, or dream that you're thinking about to accomplish in the next six months to a year? Well, I'm a baseball fan, and of course, like all baseball fans, I like to think about home runs. There's nothing better than a home run. But the real truth is, if you're a winning team, you've got to get a lot of singles. The home run only has value if there are a lot of ducks on the pond, as they say in baseball, right? Lots of people on base. And so I'm hoping that we can start this institute out by bringing people together and creating initiatives that will later generate um, much larger and more impactful uh, opportunities and, and resources. So I wanna hit some singles. And those can be as simple as bringing faculty to the table who don't know that they're interested in disability and getting them turned on, as they used to say back in the 60s and also um, bringing together um, students across the university who haven't historically interacted with other students, both disabled and non-disabled students, to think about uh, contemporary issues having to do with disablement. So for instance, to give you an example, right now I'm teaching a course in the honors program here, uh, the title of which is DNA in Popular Culture. Now, that title doesn't necessarily suggest what it's about, right? But what it's about is um, the capacity we now have through foundation, uh, through extraordinary research that's been done at the University of California uh, at Berkeley uh, that allows uh, us now to actually uh, modify uh, the human genome at the most intricate levels. Uh, CRISPR-Cas9 research uh, led by Jennifer Doudna at Berkeley, um, means that we can now actually modify um, in utero, um, you know, uh, infants before they're born and actually transform their DNA. Now, that's an exciting prospect in the sense that it could conceivably lead to, you know, the capacity to cure multiple sclerosis or, and, uh, you know, devastating pulmonary um, cystic fibrosis, disabilities like that. On the other hand, um, it is also alarming because it opens the possibility to designer babies in equal um, opportunities in healthcare, um, you know, a, what we would call in disability uh, studies, a eugenics 2.0, the capacity to actually um, further devalue or eliminate people with disabilities. So, there are really pressing issues that are really right now knocking on the door of um, what we call bioethics or social ethics. So bringing people together around the table to think about what it means to be human is now actually both a marriage of science 
and uh, you know, really profound contemporary research, but it's also about ethics and medicine and uh, embodiment. And so that's the kind of thing we're thinking about here. It's interesting you were asking me about the poetry earlier and the golem um, in many ways is imagined in um, different literary uh, representations as disabled in the sense that the go a golem when it's created um, from from the mud and the blessings and invocations that are spiritually utilized is not able to speak for itself. And so the golem in the poems that I wrote is, uh, you know, the, the status of disability in this character is debatable. But one of the things that's interesting about this is that Mary Shelley, when she wrote Frankenstein, which is uh, widely recognized as the first example of science fiction, of course, written by a woman, when she created the representation of the so-called monster, um, that monster, some people have wondered uh, whether it was in, in many respects based um, on this uh, Jewish history of, of the creation of a golem. And the sense of a golem is very much about protection from invasion and from being undermined. So people who are disabled are um, stereotyped in all kinds of extreme ways as a threat to uh, the normative society, as not belonging in some way that is understandable by someone who doesn't share that experience. And so eugenics um, is, is not extreme um, anymore if we really do have um, the capacity to do the kinds of things that the movie Gattaca uh, famously articulated you know, over 20 years ago, that we actually are living in a world where people can decide who is uh, worth living, whose life is worth living, and whose life is considered monstrous, and under what circumstances. So I agree with Steve's assertions here, and we have all kinds of literary history to support why it's important to really forward these conversations in an interdisciplinary way. Thank you, Diane. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, we, we've been centering most of our discussion on, on the Syracuse University campus, but, but we have a very broad audience on ADA Live. And, and I'm wondering how the work you're doing can be replicated on, on other campuses. I'm going to pass the baton to Diane, who's already keenly involved in this. I think one thing is that we have to gather together um, virtually and in person and lots of other ways. The, the commitments that we know people have um, all over the country and globally. So for example, people want to start disability cultural centers um, all over the world. Um, and how do they operationalize that or make that come true? And so one, it's really a, maybe a simplistic way to answer you, Barry, but one way is that people don't know about each other's work. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people need to actually meet each other. So there's this wonderful conference. I want to give a shout out to Wendy Harbour, Dr. Wendy Harbour, who used to be here at Syracuse and is now at AHEAD, the Association for Higher Education and Disability, and helps coordinate the National College Center for Students with Disabilities. And the conference Disabled and Proud that had historically been at SU and is now housed and created through initiatives with those spaces I just mentioned, the National College Center for Students with Disabilities. So Kim Elmore and Richard Allegra and Wendy Harbour and others work together to create Disabled and Proud, 
which is a university structure, but really it can be any place. It doesn't have to be housed in an institution specifically, where disabled students meet each other and talk about what it's like to be disabled in college and talk about what it's like to create mentorship models and programs and initiatives where they're really engaged and how they might start a disability cultural center or a club or work with faculty who maybe teach in what is not officially called disability studies, but is something that has to do with um, an understanding of disability. Again, it's not a triumph over adversity, but part of the human experience. And so there is now this incredible group of people from all over the country and globally who are being introduced to each other through these different um, opportunities. And so I'm really interested in making sure that people um, find ways to connect. And so Steve and I have been talking about creating um, a, a portal or a, a global set of toolkits in collaboration with students all over the country and all over the world. How do people know what resources they need to create opportunities like this? And so in a parallel way, what kinds of things can people do at other campuses to create interdisciplinary programs and outreach with disability at the center? I think that the kinds of models that we're going to create would absolutely be adaptable um, and able to be used in multiple contexts at universities, at NGOs, at DPOs, disabled people's organizations all over the place. So that's one way, um, among others, to accomplish that. Great. Thank you. Um, we are running out of time, so I want to stop here, um, Steve and Diane, and ask if there's anything else you'd like to share regarding this, this new initiative or, or any other flights of fancy you may have. Oh dear, flights of fancy. Well, yes, I would like to say that this conversation should, to listeners out there, uh, really be an invitation. We're open for business. We're open for ideas. We're open for imagination. I started this off by saying that disability isn't merely uh, a matter of law and, and advocacy around the law, but that it is also uh, richly conversant with every area of human activity and engagement and history and culture. So that being said, uh, if someone out there in uh, podcast land, remember when we used to call it radio land, mm -hmm. uh, you know, has uh, an idea for thinking about disability um, outside the box, as we like to say, mm -hmm. right? Um, let us know. Contact us. Be in touch. That's my flight of fancy. That's an I excellent one. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Diane. No, I apologize. That is an excellent one. I think that, uh, you know, when Steve and I first started talking about this, I started to think about um, the excitement around the possibilities here because it is certainly work that will be connected to the immediacy of our populations here at Syracuse University, but it really is an invitation, as Steve said, to work around the country and around the world. And so, you know, I have the ideas about creating documentaries where disabled people are at the center of the creation of inclusive, accessible documentary production, and that we partner with already existing um, film series and um, creative writing programs and arts initiatives and faith 
um, training initiatives and, and the sense that people are learning about divinity or they're learning about secular humanism. How do they think about that and making the spaces uh, go beyond compliance? And in many respects, the law uh, exempts um, some faith um, locations from having to abide by inclusion. And so what can be done about that so we really create a more welcoming society? Uh, there are a lot of people working on matters related to this all over the country. And I think about issues like food scarcity um, and food access, um, the history of, you know, um, the way disability is described, the oral history of people who have lived through different experiences before and since the ADA was ratified. So really it's uh, across the board, um, very, in a, very, very many wonderful opportunities for innovation and engagement. Again, centering disabled expertise um, always and the wonderful adage, um, nothing about us without us, not just being polemical, but genuine. There should never be a conversation about disability where disabled people are not at the heart of the conversation from the beginning. Very true. Thank you, Diane. Um, both Diane and Steve, thank you so much for being with us today. Listeners, our guests have been Steve Cusisto, University Professor and Director of Interdisciplinary Programs and Outreach, and Diane Weiner, <clears throat> Research Professor an Associate Director of the Interdisciplinary Programs and Outreach at the Burke Blatt Institute. Thanks again for being with us. Listeners, as always, we thank you for joining us for today's episode of ADA Live. This episode and all previous ADA Live episodes are available at our website, adalive.org. All our episodes are archived in a variety of formats, including streamed audio, accessible transcripts, you can also download it as a podcast. It's as easy as going to your podcast icon on your mobile device and searching for ADA Live. Again, you can submit your questions at any time, adalive.org. And if you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. And remember, those calls are always free and they're confidential. ADA Live is a podcast of the Southeast ADA Center. Our producer is Celestia Osrada, along with Beth Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marcia Schwanke, and me, Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. We'll see you next month. Well, all these in accessible